0: This is the Naked Genetics podcast, taking a look
1: inside your genes.
0: This month, we're finding out how genetic advances are shaping the future of healthcare at the Genetic Society Autumn meeting.
2: It's clear with our ability to to sequence DNA at scale, the human genome is becoming an important part of how we think about healthcare and medicine. Over the next 10 years or so, there's predictions that we're going to be, have up to a billion genomes sequenced, and most of these are going to be sequenced in the, in the healthcare setting.
0: Plus, signposts for bees and an operatic gene of the month. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for December 2017 with me, Dr Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. This month I've been off on an amazing holiday to Africa, tracking wild gorillas, climbing an alarmingly active volcano and picking up a delightful selection of enteric pathogens along the way. But while I've been enjoying myself, I sent Naked Scientist Ginny Smith along to the Genetic Society Autumn Meeting at the Royal Society in London, held in partnership with the British Society of Genetic Medicine, entitled The Human Genome in Healthcare. She recorded a bumper bunch of interviews for you, revealing how advances in gene sequencing and editing are shaping the future of medical diagnosis and treatment. First up, she spoke to one of the meeting's organisers, Professor Michael Simpson from King's College London and Genomics PLC, to find out more about the idea behind the conference and to get a taster of the talks ahead.
2: It's clear with our ability to, to sequence DNA at scale, the human genome is becoming an, an important part of how we think about healthcare and medicine. Over the next 10 years or so, there's predictions that we're going to be, have up to a billion genomes sequenced, and most of these are going to be sequenced in the, in the healthcare setting. And so there's important challenges Uh, in terms of interpreting the variation that we see in various clinical contexts. And I think the coming together of of both the Genetic Society membership and the British Society of of Genetic Medicine really enables us to kind of think about the the fundamentals of genetics in the context of the clinical application of these technologies. We put together a programme which covers... You know, a wide range of areas where genetics is going to be important in decision making in in medicine.
1: can you give me some examples of the kinds of talks that you 've got going on here and the breadth that they 're covering
2: yeah so we've, we have uh, this morning we 've had a session on uh, rare disease uh, genetics, so how we can use structural information from proteins to, to prioritize variants in certain uh, genetic contexts. We've got a session this afternoon which thinks about genetics in a slightly different way and and trying to treat genetic disorders and potentially uh, using the genome as a a target for for therapeutic approaches with CRISPR-based technologies. Then we've got sessions on cancer, surveying of the mutations that arise in cancer can be useful for, for both predicting prognosis and response to therapies. And then the potential for genetics to be used in the context of common complex disease and also pharmacogenetics, so how individuals based on their genetics will vary in their response to certain drugs. And then we've also got uh, the final session tomorrow afternoon, looks at some of the complex ethical issues of using this kind of data, and also the educational uh, side of this in terms of bringing the public, raising their awareness of what genetics is, the promise that it holds, but also the challenges that we, we currently face in using this type of data effectively.
1: What do you think is the most exciting development that we're gonna see in healthcare in the next, say, 10 years that's based on kind of genetic research that's going on at the moment? Is there an area that you're particularly sort of looking forward to seeing where it goes?
2: So I think there's, there's two parts. There's the day-to-day use of this kind of technology in the clinic, and so it's, it's use, um, particularly in cancer, in trying to identify which individuals are going to respond to certain um, therapeutics, um, but also that we can actually use this information once we have it at scale and a greater understanding of the relationship between genetic variation and human disease um, to prioritise targets for new therapeutic development and help decrease the the risk of of some of these targets and drug development programmes.
0: Michael Simpson speaking to Ginny Smith. Before doctors can use genetic data to diagnose and treat disease, they need to know exactly what the myriad different variations in the human genome mean for sickness and health. And as the amount of genetic data expands exponentially, that problem is only getting bigger. Katlin Smoker from the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute is trying to get to grips with the data deluge and sift the signal from the noise, as she explained to Ginny Smith.
3: So one of the big questions within genetics is being able to understand any genetic changes that we see in individuals. And what you need to be able to do to understand the change in one individual is to look at many, many individuals. And the reason this is important is because all of us have a lot of changes in our genome. And so we really need to be able to filter out the changes that are important from the changes that are there because they're there, because you're human, because you have them. There are a subset of changes within each individual that might be contributing to differences in their their height or their weight. And we want to be able to determine which changes are contributing to the height difference and which changes aren't contributing. And so in order to be able to understand that, it's best to look at many people. So the work I've been doing is looking at many people to come up with ways to separate out the signal from the noise, the interesting changes from the not so interesting changes, if you want to summarise that way. And how are you applying this to healthcare? So the application of healthcare is that we know genetic changes can influence your risk for disease or a particular disease that you have and if you look, for example, at children with a developmental disorders such as severe intellectual disability, we know that there are genetic contributions to that and what we want to be able to do is when we look at one of these children and we have all of their genetic changes, we want to be able to find the subset of changes that appear to be contributing to their developmental disorder, as opposed to contributing, for example, to their height.
1: So there'll be some differences in the genome of someone with a disease that are
3: causing the disease, perhaps, but then there'll be other differences that are just at random. Is that the idea? Yes, that's exactly the idea. There are plenty of changes within every individual that don't have a major impact at all they seem to be relatively neutral in terms of the way that the individual acts or operates overall. How do
1: you if you've got say a sample of people with a disease and you find a change in their DNA how do you then work out if that is the change that's causing a problem or just something that's come up at random?
3: That's an excellent question. So you have an individual and you have all of their variation. And the best way to understand any changes you've seen in an individual is to look at a population. So you can check, for example, if anyone else with a very similar disease has that exact same change. And that is one of the ways that you can say, well, if two people with the exact same disease have the exact same change, that seems interesting. Another way to do it is to look at relatively healthy people, the general population, and to say... Let's find areas that no one has a change in, because if you have this particular gene, for example, that makes a specific protein, if you look at most of the population, they don't have any changes in this gene at all, but your patient has a change, that indicates to you that most people seem to be intolerant of any change here, where your patient might, this change might be more likely to be leading to their disorder. But
1: am I right in thinking that most diseases, it's not as simple as a single gene that will have a change.
3: It'll be a combination of genes. Correct. (laughs) That's what makes it even harder, is that every individual, for many things, will have a variety of changes, multiple changes that are all contributing. And so what we're trying to do is help highlight the areas or the specific changes that appear to be more likely to be important. And so you could do this across the board. And if someone has five changes that are all never seen in a healthy person, that oh, those five changes might be working together in order to lead to the disorder. But this is one of the main challenges today, is not only to highlight changes that look interesting, but to figure out how they're working together to lead to some of these different disease states. Now this sounds to me like it might be as much of a data
1: issue as it is a biology issue. How do you handle the quantity of information you must have to deal with on a daily basis?
3: We have some very nice computers (laughs) and actually increasingly people are moving to cloud-based systems so this is instead of storing for example all of an individual's changes in some text file on your computer we store it across many computers that you can access from many different places in the world and this allows researchers not only at the Sanger Institute where I'm based but researchers in Boston or in Germany or a variety of places in the world to all contribute to Um, understanding the different changes and how they work together Uh, and so yes this is becoming a computational issue and increasingly these days we're shifting from away from looking at an individual person on their own and trying to solve one thing at a time we're looking at large-scale data all together to understand so um, yes programming and computer skills are increasingly important biology these days. And what kind of numbers are we talking about in these population studies? So a data set I've worked with a lot has 61,000 relatively healthy people. We've now released a data set that's roughly 140,000 relatively healthy people. Uh, the UK Biobank, which is a, a big study based, of course, in the UK, has 500,000 people. So as we continue to sequence or uh, look at different genetic changes in individuals, it will scale up to hundreds of thousands and millions of people. And that's what we need. We want to put and single individuals in the context of millions.
1: And how do you feel your work is going to apply to the
3: future of healthcare in general? Many people have predicted that in the somewhat near future, every individual will have their genetic variation interrogated. So you might be walking around with knowledge about all of your genetic changes. The hope is to be able to educate clinicians so that they can help use this information in order to prioritize what you specifically have. So we already know, for example, that there are some genetic changes associated with how well you process particular drugs. That's incredibly important for your GP to know before they give you any particular drug. So in the future, the hope is that the work that I've done will give the clinicians a way to prioritize what might be um, involved in your particular disease that you're seeing your physician or your clinician about generally. That's always the hope. (laughs)
0: The Sanger Institute's Catlin Samoka. One of the biggest research programmes in genomic medicine in the UK right now is the 100,000 Genomes Project, run by Genomics England. Ginny spoke to Richard Scott from Genomics England to find out more about the project and how it could change medicine in the future, particularly for rare diseases.
4: So the project aims to recruit patients from the NHS, a total of 100,000 genomes, people who have either cancer or rare disease, to both help their own clinical care in the NHS but also allow research and to foster a genomics industry in the UK.
1: Why is it so important to know more about the genetics of cancer and these other diseases?
4: So both cancer and rare disease are genetic diseases in different ways. Cancers are genetic in that they form because of mutations in the cancer cells that are different from the cells that you're born with. And rare diseases can quite often be caused by very rare genetic alterations in the genes, in the DNA that you're born with. If you understand the cause, either in cancer, what's driving it, or in the rare disease, what's caused it, it helps you look after the person better.
1: There must be specific challenges to working with rare diseases in that you have fewer people to work with. How does that affect your project?
4: So rare disease is strange. Each of the individual diseases is rare. So by definition, there's one in 2,000 or fewer people are affected with it. But collectively, they're very common. So there are thousands of different rare diseases. So we think about one in 17 of the population actually have a rare disease. And the real challenge is we're actually, in medicine, quite poor at recognizing many of these diseases. So taking a a broad diagnostic approach as you can with genome sequencing is really helpful in many of these situations because it helps you to find the cause where using the more traditional approaches is really challenging. It's like finding a needle in a haystack sometimes, and this, these newer technologies really help with that.
1: I guess one in 2000 is rare for a specific GP to have come across that disease before, but actually in terms of the world population, there are quite a lot of people living with each of the diseases.
4: That's right. For for those that are as, as common as one in 2000, and in the rare disease world, that feels common. There are a lot of people with those. but. We know that there are many diseases which are really vanishingly rare. We're very lucky in this country that we've got a project of such scale. 100,000 genomes is a lot. But even with that, it's too small for us to know that we'll find... Um, the causes of some of these really vanishingly rare conditions where perhaps we'll only recruit one person um, with the condition to the project and it's very hard to recognize patterns when you're only looking in in one person or one family.
1: So if you were say a person with one of these really rare diseases is there still going to be a benefit to you from being part of the project?
4: Absolutely so our primary aim in terms of the immediate benefits to people with rare diseases joining the project is that we might find a diagnosis we know that we can't be sure whether or not we will, but that's the the prime initial aim. It also means that potentially in the future if a cause is found or something else recognized in the genome that is um, useful clinically there's the potential for the people to be recontacted and offered um, the possibility of recruitment to other research to do with their condition that might be helpful to them themselves or to p- other people with their condition in the future.
1: And as well as diagnosis, will there be effects that might change their treatment if they've been part of the project, both for the rare diseases and for their cancer patients?
4: Absolutely. In cancer particularly, the focus is on changing treatments, whether that's avoiding treatments that you can see from the signature in the cancer, wouldn't be effective, and but might just have unnecessary side effects, or whether it's finding something quite targeted that will be more effective. In rare disease, there's changes in treatments, although that's sadly at the moment a relatively small number of rare diseases is that possible. But it's often possible to change management, so for example, to know in someone, if you know what exact disease they have, whether you should look out for particular medical complications more carefully than in a general population, perhaps screen them for high blood pressure at a younger age than the general population would need. That sort of thing can be really helpful and actually change outcomes quite a lot.
0: Ginny Smith speaking with Richard Scott from Genomics England. You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Kat Arney, and this month we're reporting back from the Genetic Society and British Society for Genetic Medicine joint autumn meeting, focusing on genomics in healthcare. Every year the Society gives out a number of prizes to leading geneticists who win the opportunity to give a lecture about their work. Andrew Wood from the University of Edinburgh is the winner of this year's Balfour Lecture, given to an outstanding young investigator. Here he is talking to Ginny about his prize-winning work.
5: CRISPR-Cas9 is a new tool. Um, It was developed for use in human cells in 2012. However, it it replaced older, clunkier versions of uh, of technology that aimed to do essentially the same thing. And part of what I was talking about today was was my experience with some of those older technologies and and comparisons between uh, between those and and modern day methods.
1: So what kinds of Sequences might you be wanting to add to or take out of a genome and why?
5: Well, for example, um, let's imagine that a uh, clinician has identified a human disease and a gene variant um, has been found in individuals who have that disease. In order to um, show that that gene variant is causal for the disease, one of the approaches that researchers take is to take cells and engineer that particular variant into a cell that didn't have it previously and to see whether or not that cell behaves differently in a way that might uh, link that variant to the disease identified in the human.
1: So you can actually kind of create models of these diseases in animals?
5: Uh, In animals, in human cells, essentially any uh, living organism now. That's one of the great things about genome editing, that it is portable between just about any living system that you can imagine.
1: And I guess that then means that you can test drugs and other therapies and see if you can cure the disease that you've created.
5: Absolutely. It means that, um, yeah, you you can create for example, cellular models that have these variants and then screen compounds of drugs and see how cells that have that variant behave and how that differs from cells that don't have that variant. That would be one uh, approach that a lot of people are taking.
1: Is there anything in particular that you've come across so far in this meeting or that's coming up tomorrow that you think is really exciting and you think might be the kind of the next step in genetics and healthcare?
5: I mean, the the general theme of uh, mining large quantities of DNA sequence data in order to um, find out what distinguishes populations of individuals with respect to their susceptibility to diseases, I think is really exciting.
1: So looking at the kind of preventative or predicting disease before it even happens rather than curing it after it's happened.
5: Yeah, exactly that. Or or also... um, Perhaps kind of retrospectively looking at the way that different groups of patients have responded to a particular drug and seeing whether or not those which responded in a positive manner um, have particular variants that are uh, not present in the the group that that didn't respond so well to the drug, for example.
1: So this is coming towards the kind of idea of personalized healthcare that will all be screened and whatever treatments we're given will be tailored for us.
5: Absolutely. Yeah, that's a a big uh, buzzword in in, uh, medicine at the moment.
1: Do you think it's likely that that's going to be happening soon or is it still a long, long way away in terms of being financially viable?
5: Well, I mean, there are a few sort of poster child cases that get kind of trotted out as a, a good test case for this kind of approach. It is inherently a very expensive business. Uh, First of all, gathering the genetic information is is very expensive. Any kind of drug development process is is also incredibly expensive. So yes, the idea of this leading to therapies quickly that can be applied to lots of people at the moment still seems uh, quite a long way away.
0: Andrew Wood from the University of Edinburgh. As you've probably guessed from the number of times we've covered it on previous podcasts, there's a huge amount of excitement about the potential for CRISPR to treat human diseases. But what are the most promising applications? To find out, Ginny caught up with Jakob Tolar from the University of Minnesota.
6: The number of early adopters of this technology and uh, one of the leading technologies is called gene editing. It basically means that you have a typo in the three billion letters of the genome and you just take that single letter that is incorrect and you exchange it for the right one.
1: How do you go about doing that?
6: it is absolutely fascinating because we have used a what i would call augmented reality you know for this because we have generated molecules that don't exist in nature and uh, put together two functions that do exist in nature one that binds dna that binds to a specific site in the DNA and the other one that cuts DNA so we put them together and these hybrid molecules that don't exist in nature have been used in service of the gene editing of the rewriting of the incorrect information that is in the blueprint um, of the genome.
1: How do you get these brand new molecules into a living human?
6: You are asking the, exactly the most important bottleneck of the whole technology because the cell is very smart. It defends itself from any foreign DNA or any foreign particle such as the ones that we would be using for gene editing. So to accomplish this, you know, we try to be also smart and learn from nature. So we, for example, modify the nucleic acids that we use for this or we encapsulate you know, some of the proteins that we want to deliver so that it can cross the cellular membrane as well as the nuclear membrane and gets to the to the heart of the cell to the nucleus where the dna lives
1: you're effectively hiding it so that the cell can't tell that it's something that it shouldn't be letting in
6: yeah that's a good term we are effectively hiding it from the the self defense mechanisms you know that exist in each cell
1: this sounds really kind of sci-fi futuristic is this something that's actually currently in use first of
6: all there's nothing sci-fi about this you know there's no miracles you know I always you know cringe a little bit you know when I see this is a medical miracle you know never almost never is you know it's a it's a sequence it's a it's a it's a readout of a year or decade-long work of many 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 people so I think you know this is a predictable incremental very exciting pathway we are taking now
1: what kind of diseases is this currently being used for
6: the majority of the disorders that this would be helpful for is uh, are monogenic disorder. What that means is that a single gene is faulty in the whole genome of that individual that's born with that disease. It would not be used at this time for what we call polygenic disorders, which is many many genes are, you know, uh, affected by by the disorder. And the examples of the diseases that this would be helpful for would be, uh, for example, bone marrow failures. You know, this is a state when kids are born with insufficient number of stem cells that are blood forming in the bone marrow and will eventually use them up and have no more to provide for healthy platelets and white cells and red blood cells. It can equally be used for liver disorders you know, that are, uh, that are hampering the ability of the liver to detoxify or make new proteins that are necessary for healthy living. And as I showed in, the, in my comments, it can be used for skin disorders such as epidermolysis bullosa. It's a very, very hard disorder to, even for some people to look at. But it's a very equally important, at least for me, it's a challenge for medicine and science in medicine to approach. And uh, the the hallmark of the disease is uh, loss of skin. These are chemical, these are similar to a chemical or thermal burn. uh, And uh, only this time the burn is uh, genetic.
1: And this disease can be treated using these new molecules that you've created?
6: That's what we are working on. That is where we are headed.
1: So how would the process actually work if you were to go in for gene editing treatment? What would it be like as a patient?
6: So I think that the the incremental safety uh, levels that, that needs to be cleared, I think, are that these cells, skin cells, and perhaps other cells that make uh, these all-important skin molecules, that don't have to live in skin, called mesenchymal stromal cells, will be corrected outside of the body of that individual, and then her or his own cells will be given back to them.
1: Okay, so the the novel molecules wouldn't actually be going into the body, that would be done outside?
6: I would prefer that because I think it's a it's whole new box of uh, Pandora you know to to go into uh, the whole organism with a uh, with a genetic uh, medication
1: yes well what could be the risks of this kind of gene editing technology is there a danger that it could edit in the wrong place for example and cause problems
6: You are very smart, yes, you know, that is the major concern of ours and everybody else working in the field that uh, inadvertently, you know, the same mechanism that can lead to uh, clean correction where we desire it can lead to undesired correction, quote unquote, correction mistake introduced somewhere else in the genome that would have clinical consequences.
1: And what kind of effects could that have in theory?
6: The most feared one is uh, cancer. It has uh, happened in the past you know, with other forms of gene therapy, so people are especially sensitive to this, and rightly so. Uh, another one would be uh, dysregulation of the human immune system. I can see that this can lead to autoimmunity problems as well.
1: And do you think that this kind of technique will be developed and will be able to be used for more complex disorders that involve multiple genes, or will they always be too complicated?
6: No, I am almost certain You know that this is headed to the direction that as we perfect it on the level of the single gene, this will advance to the polygenic disorder as well. One of the great advantages of this uh, approach is that it's modular. It can be like a Lego. It can be put together from different, different pieces, and you can combine different... Different corrective molecules on the same molecule and same cell.
1: Now the million dollar question, how long until these kind of technologies are going to be in widespread use?
6: Million dollar question but no answer because I think th- there's a reason for why future is unpredictable. We just don't know. But if I take it from other parts of technology such as transistor, from a transistor in Bell's labs to transistor radio in Texas Instruments, it was about 10 years.
0: Jakob Tola from the University of Minnesota speaking to Ginny Smith and rounding off our report from the Genetic Society autumn meeting. This is the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Kat Arney. Coming up later, our gene of the month is larger than life. But first... Last month, I chatted to Professor Enrico Cohen from the John Innes Centre in Norwich about his Genetic Society JBS Haldane Medal Lecture, and also his love of snapdragons. This month, Rico has published a new paper in the journal Science, revealing a fascinating genetic mechanism underpinning the evolution of the brightly coloured signposts that bees use to home in on the juicy nectar in the centre of snapdragon flowers. I caught up with him for a chat about his latest floral findings.
7: In the Pyrenees, there are these two species of snapdragons that have different ways of signposting to bees where the bees can enter the flower. So there's a sort of like a red or magenta flower with a yellow highlight, and that's one species, and then there's another species with yellow flowers and a magenta highlight. And we were trying to understand how these differences arose. I mean, why does one species have one type of signpost and the other species have another type of signpost? And to do this, we started to analyse some of the genes involved control these different traits and the amazing thing was that we found out that one of the genes the genes that controls the yellow highlight arose through a sort of sort of very strange um, mirror image duplication so it sort of created a mirror copy of itself and through this mirror copy it generated a specific type of molecule what's what's called a small rna and that's that molecule is what's involved in restricting the yellow pigmentation. So that was a complete surprise. People had found these types of mirror image duplications in the laboratory. And then we know they're also part of the genome. But to discover that they were responsible for this variation in the, that you see out there in, in nature, that was a fantastic surprise, really. And that's what the paper's about, about that discovery.
0: When I think back through my history of genetics, I do remember that the first discovery that small bits of RNA could turn genes off was made in petunias. It was about the the sort of researchers were trying to make the purple colour in petunias and then they discovered that they accidentally switched the purple gene off. So is that sort of a similar process and is that process widely used in plants?
7: It is a similar process. The petunia story you're talking about was when people were putting genes into petunias and uh, artificially so they were inserting these genes into these plants and they discovered this strange phenomenon and this is exactly the phenomenon that that we've discovered except that it's not through people uh, changing artificially the genomes it's happening in nature itself so that's the striking thing that actually nature was there way before us in terms of these types of uh, rearrangements and mirror images.
0: What's the next step for this now that you've discovered this, what are you going to do with the information now you know there is this kind of mirror image thing that switches the, the colour off?
7: So what we'd really like to know now is how this whole system originated. What we're seeing today is different signposts and we'd really like to understand how do they arise, how did it, how is it that evolution led to one signpost in one species, another signpost in the other species. And that's looking, digging deeper into the genome, looking at how these originated, how these mirror image duplications arose, really looking quite broadly across the different species, across their genomes, trying to do experiments to figure out how this remarkable difference arose. This, it's a bit of a conundrum. How is it that you end up with two equally good solutions from starting from one beginning?
0: Enrico Cohen from the John Innes Centre in Norwich. And finally, it's time for our gene of the month, and this month it's Pavarotti. Named after the famously portly opera singer, this gene was first identified in Drosophila fruit flies in 1998. Fly embryos with a fault in their Pavarotti gene have abnormally large cells in the nervous system because the cells fail to divide properly and just keep on growing. Eventually, the embryos die because they can't form a proper nervous system. Further research has revealed that Pavarotti encodes a type of protein that acts as a tiny molecular motor known as a kinesin. These motors crawl along the biological scaffolding inside cells and help to change a cell's shape and structure, vital steps in the process of cell division, as a cell contracts in the middle and splits in two. In mammals, Pavarotti is known by the less dramatic name mitotic kinesin-like protein 1, or MKLP1. But rather than being responsible for knocking out a passable version of Ness and Dorma, it is also involved in building healthy nerve cells. That's all for now. I'll be back next month with a trip to the womb, looking at the genetics of development. Until then, if you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at com You can get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page or just tweet at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is available on iTunes and online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll be back next time for another peek inside your genes.